Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Harbin Report, this podcast you're listening to, is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the most comprehensive suite of phone features for business at the lowest price. Check it out at Phone.com. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to save 20%. That's P-H-O-N-E dot com, code T-H-O-M, Phone.com, code TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you live from Elmhurst, Illinois, suburban Chicago. We're at the Bricklayers District Council building. Our show here is being supported by uh, or facilitated by the Bricklayers District Council 1, Smart 265, the Painters District Council 14, the GWC Injury Law Firm, the Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers Local 11, and Operating Engineers 399. And we're having representatives basically from all those groups and all those folks at various times throughout the program today. And we're looking at not just the elections and not just the debates and all this kind of stuff. In fact, that was you know mostly the previous hour that we were talking about each person's take on the debates and how it's working out and what do you think about that, but also the issues that labor is facing right now. So with us in the panel right now for this segment, Jeff Eppenstein, who is the uh, international rep with the Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers, Matt Gugala, who is the vice president of Smart 265, and Jim Allen, the president of the local bricklayers, uh, the uh, BACADC District Council 1, to be technically accurate. And uh, so, you know, Training tomorrow's labor. Where do we start with this? Jim, you want to kick this off? Well, everybody in the building trades, and that's who we can speak for today, has training centers that are world-class training centers. And what we do is we take people off the street that want to be in the trades, and we give them an opportunity to make a great living. It's a career. It's not just a temporary job. We have instructors that take a kid, male or female, start them out, they may be 18, 19 years old, and we train them, and then we get them to work with our signatory contractors, and they go on to have a career in the construction industry. And it's, uh, every one of our unions have these schools, which is amazing. And I I think it's probably, someone had this, uh, I wish I had the, exact quote, but I think we are the biggest training facilities in the, in the United States. Am I right, Jeff? My understanding is second this only. This is Jeff Eppenstein. Uh, Jimmy, my understanding is we're second only to the Department of Defense. That's amazing. 
Wow, and and training. The by by we, the, you mean na nationwide? The, the, these yeah. nationwide JATC, Joint Apprenticeship Training Programs, are the second largest educator next to the Department of Defense. That's all colleges together. We have more training going on, and we, and we self-fund that training. Right. And collectively, we right. invest $1.5 billion annually. So $1.5 billion annually in uh, training. with all the trades put together in training. Yeah. Wow. With no tax dollars. With no That's tax. all private. This is all funded by union Funded by dues, union basically. contractors. Yep. Yeah. And, our, and our dues. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing stuff. It, just to reset this, because you know, sometimes you, people just tune in. You're with Smart 265. The union represents? Sheet metal, air, rail, and transportation. Okay, cool. My dad was in a tool and die shop. And I, now, now this is the good old days, right? I'm, I'm remembering the 60s, the 50s, and 60s, and the 70s. Well, you know, I left Michigan in the 70s, but... Uh, I'm know, too young for that. You yeah. know, I was, I, As, I'm but, only but, eight, 18. Well, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going with this question. Is, you know, they, they, they had a little, a little tool and die shop. It was owned by a local family. They, they treated their workers really well. It had a, you know, it was a member of the union. And in that tool and die, which was a 12-man shop, and in that tool and die shop, they had their own training program. They had their own apprenticeship program. It took a couple of years, as I recall, to become a journeyman, you know, as a machinist, as a tool and die maker. How have things changed since then? Yeah, things have changed drastically. Yeah. Um, so now the people that we have working behind the scenes to get these programs together that are accredited by the Department of Labor, they have to go through trials and tribulations to get a program that's, that's college-worthy, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So back when they had it in the tool and die shop and back in the past where that we're just teaching somebody how to do this. Right. right. It was kind of an internal process. Exactly. Now it's regulated and it's it's the level of it has been stepped up to which we're taking workers that have in the past been exploited. Right. You're training them how to be safe and how to be skilled. So then they all work together. So you're actually training them how to do their job, how to be safe on their job. There's other skills other than, you know, swing the hammer. Right? right. So they're learning these things and, and learning how to live with dignity and be able to retire with dignity and have health insurance and raise their families and all that stuff. So so the importance of these, it, it's it's immense. Yeah. You know? So when when, you know, somebody used to go to work at Lansing Tool and Die and they'd end up, you know, being a journeyman there through that, they they learned the machines that were in that shop you know, where my dad worked. If they went someplace else, unless they had those same machines, they didn't have that necessarily that skill set outside of the general principle. So what you're saying is we're, we're training people across a broad spectrum of things within this particular specialty so that they can work pretty much anywhere. That's right? exactly right. So yeah. so they have different, different disciplines that they're going to go through. They're going to learn a little bit of electricity. They're going to learn how to do schematics. They're going to learn how to install sheet metal panels. They're going to learn all of the skills that come along with our trade so they can do it safely and properly and equitably for the owners of the companies too. Yeah. yeah. Jeff Epstein, the international rep for the Ruffers waterproofers and allied workers. One of my brothers was a roofer, a great guy, by the way. And I knew that he had a skill set that mm -hmm. at times baffled me, and they could put a roof up really fast, but I never thought of it as a, quote, skilled trade. But it's really become one, and, and or maybe it was all, all along, and I just it, really didn't know because I wasn't there, you know? I, I, well, if, if I, I definitely is a skilled trade, and, and I know my dad's listening right now, so yes, we are skilled workers. Yeah. Um, and it always has been, even yeah. back when my but grandfather I mean, was a roofer. What I meant was something that you wouldn't go but, to school for. Right. You, know, you just learned on the job. Apprenticeships didn't really start until about the 70s. Uh, yeah. You were trained on the job. Um, but now you have these, these advanced apprenticeship training centers, as Jimmy Allen said, that, you know, we're self-funded, so we don't get any government money to train these apprentices. 
our contractors contribute to that training fund and that's how they get the training. So now an apprentice comes in and he's not only learning on the job, but he's learning in a classroom setting also and starting with all of the safety. So, so when you get a job site and you, and you have workers that come out that are untrained, that customer has a lot of liability on their hands. A, are they gonna put on a proper product? Is it going to perform as it's supposed to? And are they going to do it in a safe, productive manner so someone doesn't get hurt on your property? That's the skill sets that we instill at the JTC programs. And as Matt said, many of these programs are accredited. The Roofers Apprenticeship Program is now embarking on also having an accreditation. So these kids here, they have another option other than a lifelong debt in college. They right. can come into a training center. They can earn as they learn because they're going to earn their paycheck Monday through Friday. And some of them have weekends, some of them have night classes. But now there's going to be an extra little caveat, at least in my, my trade, and they're going to be able to earn some college credit while they're taking that class. So that if, if labor is not their stronghold and they end up going somewhere else, at least they earn some college credit while they were there and they didn't earn debt to get it. Yeah, and that's a good thing. California, I think, is requiring solar for every new house that has to be built. In China, they have literally built a couple of cities in the last five years where every single house is roofed with photovoltaic cells. That's not, correct. Not above the roof, but it is the is roof. the roof. You guys are, I'm assuming, right at the front, leading edge of this stuff. A abs absolutely, and, and uh, you know, a lot of that technology is out, is out west and south, um, mm -hmm. but it is also here in the Chicagoland area, and one of the things that's really big in the Chicagoland area is these these outdoor green spaces, so green roofs. So, so you've got patios, you've got gardens, you've got play areas, you've got dog runs up there. You, you, you'd be amazed what's up on top of a roof if you, if you ever really, I guess, do, do with what I do for a living. So there's a lot of other things that are there, but it does all start with the training. And I'm real proud that our uh, apprenticeship programs are the best in the world. That's great. Jeff Epstein, Matt Gugala, and uh, Jim Allen. We'll be right back with more of our labor panel and our labor conversations throughout the day here from the Bricklayers District Council in Elmhurst, Illinois, and via WCPT. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back with uh, more on the future of labor. We're going to talk about employment misclassification. This is amazing stuff. Stick around. Up until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that because after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite, my wife and my producer convinced me that this one was worth sharing. Well, a year later, I'd have to say they're both right. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy and she's kept it off. Same for Sean. I've also heard from listeners that it worked for them. The fact that the only ingredient in Ridgizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant has appealed to folks as well. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Riduzone, R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. RidUZone, R-I-D-U-Zone.com. I want to get into right to work in this segment, and we're joined by John Daniel, the business manager for Smart Local 265. John Spiros is still with us with the painters, and uh, Jim Allen, of course, is still with us with the bricklayers. But I also would love to hear... Because right to work, I mean, so-called, I call it right to work for less. And I think the, the Democratic Party should make that the official phrase and just, you know, always use it every time a Democrat says anything. Although, 
you know, I, I've been beating that drum for 15 years and I haven't been able to get anybody to consistently do it. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But messaging, this is really important stuff. To start with you, John Daniel, the business manager at Smart Local 265, your thoughts on, well, first of all, let's define right to work or right to work for less. This goes back to Taft-Hartley, 1947, as I recall. It was uh, passed, Congress passed it. Uh, the Republicans took control of Congress, passed this thing. Harry Truman vetoed it. Did he veto it twice? Am I recalling that correctly? I know he vetoed it at least once. you got a better memory than me. Yeah, well, you know, he fought this thing. He fought this thing, and he was really the last Democrat to fight it, 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 which is really tragic. So give us a quick fill-in here on what this is. I think your phrase, right to work for less, is framed very well. Uh, Unfortunately, our party at large, the labor movement, we're not marketers, right? We put our boots on every day. We go to work. We try to provide for our family. So the idea of creating a message for right to work, Uh, We just haven't been good at it. So the message is right to work undermines the fabric of our communities, the ability for our members to to feed their family. It's an anti-union, anti-worker legislation that's been pushed uh, heavily across the entire country. Fortunately, with our new governor Pritzker in Illinois, um, who just banned right to work zones in Illinois, we're a stronghold. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're under attack constantly with the messaging of right to work. Yeah, because the, the, the whole right to work for less thing is that as an employer, if my employees decide that they want to unionize, I can pretty much stop that. I can block it. I can drag it out. I don't even have to recognize the union if it's a right to work for less state. Do I have that right? And, I, you know, I know there's a lot of nuance to this law. So the way we frame it, right to work gives uh, employees the opportunity to be a freeloader in a collective bargaining environment. That's, mm. I don't know how else to say it. Um, it would be no different than if I wanted to join the membership of a health club down the street, and if there was a right to work legislation that said all health clubs were right to work, I would have the right to join that health club and not pay the dues to be part of that health oh, club. Oh, yeah. So this it, goes beyond what I was talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complete attack on the entire infrastructure of who we are as a collective people bargaining in unison. And And some of that actually has been um, strengthened, fortified, that is the right to work for less part of it, by several Supreme Court decisions over the years. Sure. So. The the way the Supreme Court's structured currently and what our current president has done and and been allowed to do at the Supreme Court level is uh, an absolute attack and uh, on all of us in this room and all the listeners, uh, not only from a, a collective bargaining standard, but a, a human rights standard, a the ability to provide for your family. It's been an all-out assault to sh- to continue to shift the money from the people that get up every day to go to work um, away from them and to the, the small percentage of people that put that money in their pocket. John Spiros, the business manager for the Painters District Council 14. Um, your thoughts on this? Well, right to work, like you said, is strictly to undermine the union principles and the union uh, ability to represent the members. Depending on what state you're in, all the laws vary a little bit, but quite frankly, you don't have to pay dues, but you get all the benefits. Right. You get the negotiated contract, you get the grievance procedures, um, and, and who has to pay for it? You don't as a, a non, or non-paying member. Um, to, to go back to what we were talking before with the political end, this is where electing good politicians to offices makes it work. Under Rounder, Bruce Rounder, our old Republican, he tried to uh, incorporate different municipalities to be right-to-work zones to undermine prevailing wage. Right. Okay. Um, this is the Republican war on labor. That's right. 
And uh, since Pritzker's got in, like he's, Jeff just said, I'm sorry, John just said, the, uh, he's wrote legislation, we've got legislation signed where you can no longer do that. It would have to be a statewide referendum or, or legislation. Right now, and I'm going back a couple years, um, when there was 28 states that had right to work, those were the lowest paying states in the nation for of wages. Right, because you undermine anybody that's going to do a group uh, negotiations for better working conditions, safety, uh, and wages. And so what happens then is when those unions become weaker, nobody's to stand up for the average worker because no matter what the unions do, uh, it, what they say, rising uh, sea raises all ships. So as the unions demand more money and more benefits and better working conditions, everybody benefits from that. Yeah. And uh, if there's a right it to work. It creates prosperity in the community. Cor correct, correct. Um, not too many union members or any working person is going to take you know, his paycheck and just throw it in the bank. When you give tax breaks to multimillionaires or billionaires now, what do they do? They buy a new boat or a plane, but it doesn't come right back into the economy. With uh, your average worker working out there, it churns the economy because they're putting it right back. Maybe they buy, buy a little better steak or they eat a little better or buy another car where they would have had to wait another five or ten years. And that gives employment to more and more people. The whole point of right to work is to undermine that. Yeah, and this was, I mean, this is, the Republican Party looked at, the, at labor as, you know, funding the Democratic Party and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to destroy them. And this is part of the Right to Work for Less program that, that the Republicans pushed through Congress with Taft-Hartley. And, and it allows, uh, Jim Allen, it allows these free riders that uh, John was talking about, where basically they can say, no, I don't want to pay into the union, but yes, I want to work here. So in Illinois, Governor Pritzker gets it, and he signed into law that there are no right to work for less zones in the state of Illinois yeah. without going through the General Assembly. So when Rauner took over, he, he took over and he tried to start picking off every suburb at a time, going saying, hey, you can, you can sign on and you can be right to work for less. So you, you eliminate the prevailing wage in your area. So if the prevailing wage is set in, in Illinois by the unions because they have the majority of the work, so if, the, if it's $80 an hour, $70, 60 whatever, you could sign on in your own village, say Schomburg or whatever, and you know what? Now it's a right to work for less. You can do your roads for $20 an hour. Right. So that, that's what it is. I, I always compare this to what they're trying to do. So you got Social Security. Everybody here loves Social Security, right? Everybody pays into the Social Security. If tomorrow the, the government said, you know what? If you guys want to pay into Social Security, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. You're still going to get Social Security. Who's going to pay into Social Security? Nobody. And right. what's going to happen to Social Security? It's going to go down into the tubes. Which, by the same way, is why with, the Republicans are trying to do that well, to Social exactly. Security. <laughs> but that's the whole same philosophy with unions. If you don't have dues, you can't run a union. Right. And they eliminate the dues, and that's, that's their game plan. Same with uh, you know, what I just said about Social Security. Right. So, and that is the Republicans' game plan, to eliminate unions. Unions are the last voice of the working people, period. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they know that. So what are we, you know, like I said, I, you know, Harry Truman fought this. Um, other Democratic presidents have given certainly lip service to it. Lyndon Johnson did. Um, Jack Kennedy mentioned it once. I don't recall any modern presidents who have really picked up this banner. I know that there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the Obama administration that card check was going to be yeah. on his priority list, but you know, I think they made the strategic decision, you know, right or wrong, to do health care instead. Yeah. 
I would have tried both, but your, yeah. your thoughts on where the Democrats are at on this? Uh, well, it, it, federally, the Davis-Bacon is something that uh, is, is similar. It's prevailing. This is a prevailing wage law. Yes. That, that, so yeah. the Democrats do stand up against the Republicans on that. When that Republican. But that's only that's only federal. With, that's federal project. And that's only with projects that are paid for with federal money. Federal money. So right. they do. We do get help from the Democrats when Republicans take over. We get enough people. Even some of the Republicans will come to battle. Uh, against uh, repeal of Davis-Bacon. But, uh, yeah, th this is more locally right to work. So, you know, in the South, they beat down wages and they've got right to work zones everywhere. They're actually, I think, half the country yeah. is right to work, which is amazing. Yeah, you would think that workers would figure this out. <laughs> and um, it just astonishes me that they don't. Is this... Um, is this a messaging problem, or is this just a priority well, problem? Again, it's a nice sounding word, right? Right to work. Everyone's got a right to work. Yeah. Why are you going to stop me from working? They don't get it. Yeah. Well, this so. is this is why this is this is why I'm trying to remessage it because you know if the if the pro-choice movement had instead called themselves the anti-life movement, yeah, because you get the pro-life movement, right, 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 they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. You no, know? you're right. Now that the active ingredients in Viagra and Cialis have pretty much gone generic, there's some great new products out that contain these FDA-approved drugs. Uh, you know, still require a prescription, but you can get it now online. The, the latest is BlueChew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W. That's blue like the color. And you can take these anytime, day or night, on a full stomach since they're chewable. They work twice as fast as the pills, so, you're always, so you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. And if you could benefit from that extra function and confidence, Blue Chew is a fast and safe, safe way to do it. And they ship online. It's prescribed online, ships straight to your door in a discreet package, no in-person doctor visit, no waiting at the pharmacy, no more awkwardness. It's made in the USA and ships direct, cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. You just pay $5 in shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast. Tom Hartman here with you from the Bricklayers District Council building in Elmhurst with WCPT. I want to talk about organizing, how to grow the how-to guide on growing union membership. Uh, Jim Allen, the president of the Bricklayers uh, District Council, one. You want to you want to kick this off? A lot of it, I think, is educating people. Like I, during the break, I had a couple of people come up and say, "Well, how do you get into the union? You know, how do I have some young sons that want to get in?" A lot of people don't realize that you know the union membership is open to everybody. You can go on the website and you can sign up for any trade, plumber, bricklayers, whatever, and. Uh, you get on a waiting list, and I mean, that's pretty much how everybody in this world get on there. And uh, it's open to anybody. It's free. Uh, the education is free. And, and again, because of the lack of union membership from the Reagan on down, mm -hmm. uh, people forget what unions are all about. It, but they're on the rise. I know there's been data out there that people are really starting to look at a union and say, wait a minute, why don't I just join a union? I can, I can better my life. Um, even in college people that think the only thing, way to get ahead in life is go to college, and now they're sitting there thinking, wait, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to walk out with $100,000 in debt, or I can join a, a union, and at the age of 19, I can be making $40,000, $50,000 with a pension, health and welfare, and an annuity, which is a separate pension. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so I, I think it's, it's education. We got to get the word out. And when we do have labor management uh, co-ops that do get the word out. One of them is Cisco. It's a labor management with all the building trades. So there are, uh, it's, it's education, getting, yeah. getting people back to understand what a union is. And that's, uh, and there should be a media strategy to that too. And you know, again, the unfortunate thing, so much of our media, particularly the, uh, the radio landscape is all locked up by giant, giant right-wing corporations yes, that program bizarre right-wing stuff. Um, but that's my rant, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Matt Gugala, the Vice President of Smart 265, your thoughts on how to grow a union membership? So not only am I the Vice President, but I'm also the Director of Organizing for Local 265. Oh, oh. Yeah, big time. So um, the union organizers are the grassroots. We're the heart and soul of the union, right? So we're out there daily talking with people, going on the job sites, talking to workers that are being exploited, talking to people that, that have been working in the trade and we want to get them in to organize so they have some bargaining rights, you know. Um, so, so what we do is we try to educate, as Jim was saying. We get out in the community. We do all kinds of community service projects. We do, um, you know, food pantries. We do everything just to get in the community and show that the unions aren't the bad thing that, that people uh, may have associated them with, right? Yeah. So, so we're out there talking with these people that already do the work, and then you'd think it's an easy sell. However, it's not because the way that uh, the way the working world works they say well the, can the union promise you you know uh, 40 hours a week can they promise you this can they promise you that even though they're not promising that um, right. uh, but they, they oh you mean this is this is the riff that that's the non-union corporations you know or uh, anti-union uh, what I, I know it's that's right they I try to inoculate. union busting is a two billion dollar year industry I heard that's that right. a couple years ago that's right there's just corporations that, that a corporation can hire to come in and 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 prevent people from unionizing that's or, right or and isn't that funny because percentage wise the unions are not taking over the world right now right, right. percentage wise we're at a small percentage of the actual workforce right. however billions of dollars are spent on trying to crush the unions right it, Literally. it, 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 it makes no sense Right. Yeah. So well, it does um, from the point of view of, the, of, of you know these, from, these greedy, greedy corporations. That's exactly what it is. Warrant. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 the morality that's missing in the corporate corporate side. So we're out there. We talk with these folks and we try to bring them in. And and it's a long conversation. You know, I've been on the roof. You know, with a, with a guy that's six foot five and he's gonna. You know, I'm figuring he's gonna throw me off the roof and he's screaming at me. I don't need the union. I need nothing to do with the union. You know, and. Then you see him driving maybe six months, eight months later, and he waves to you, hey, I'm going to call you, right? And yeah. then he calls, and then he kind of comes to the senses. And then you get a text from him a year later and say, that was the best decision I've ever made in my, li in, in my life. Thank you. Thank you. My family thanks you. And right. so it's, it's really rewarding at times. But uh, um, the, the growing of the union is a, is a tough, tough deal, and the, the organizers are the grassroots of that, and we're out every day trying to explain and show, show the real face of the union, not the face that the billions of dollars is spent to, to show us. Amen. John Daniel, business manager for Smart Local 265. Weigh yeah. in. Organizing. So Matt Gugali is one of our organizers, the director of organizers. We've got three full-time organizers. I just want to take a second and give a shout-out to all the organizers that are out there. Uh, that's a tough job. It's a long game. They're in the trenches talking to non-union contractors and workers on a regular basis, trying to build rapport, to build confidence so that these disenfranchised workers, this workforce, actually trust Matt coming out to the job site and, and the believability that we actually make twice what they make and that we actually have family health care 
and that we have a, a sustainable standard of living that they can achieve, take mm -hmm. care of their family and retire with some dignity. When Matt works on the walks on the job site and talks to me as a non-union worker and tells me that, it, it, it seems fairy tale-ish. So it takes days, months, potentially years for Matt to convince that this is real. And, and by we, by we me, you it. meant that just yeah, Joe just, Average, who's yeah, on, on, yeah. you know, he's got a job the, the guy out working. So yeah. I, I want to push back on one thing that, that seems to be in the industry is that there's a shortage of manpower for mm -hmm. construction jobs. Oh, there is definitely not a shortage of manpower for construction jobs. There's a shortage of manpower um, for low-paid wages jobs. So there's a shortage of a workforce right. that will work for next to nothing. There's an absolute strong, viable workforce out there, and we're spending tons of resources to reach in the communities, uh, the, the, the disenfranchised community and the building trades, the, the females, the minorities. Uh, one of our full-time brand new business agents is Louise Medina, a female. Um, we spend a ton of resources trying to reach out to those disenfranchised workers uh, to bring them into our fold and show them what it's like to actually uh, earn a living and be able to provide for your family. Right. This, and, and, and that speaks to the issue that, um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up and looking at my dad's union, it was a largely all-white workforce. In fact, in some cases, some unions even were keeping people of, people of color sure. out. That has all changed now. Absolutely. We, 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 through Cisco, through several of our labor management committees, internally, we're on an absolute mission to change the makeup of our, of our union, to be able to communicate with the next generation of workers who talk completely different than us. We're spending tons of resources from an international level all the way down to the grassroots to bring those people into our fold. That's great. Uh, John Daniel, Matt Magala, uh, Jim Allen from Chicago, from Elmhurst, Illinois. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, everybody. It's great to have you all with us. Um, also, also chipping in on this, Smart 265, the Painters District Council 14, the GWC Injury Law Firm, the Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers, Local 11, and Operator Engineers. Today, we're with a special labor show. We've got Chicago's a great labor city. Illinois is a great labor state. But Chicago, in particular, always has been. I grew up just down the road in Lansing. We spent a lot of time in Chicago growing up. I came from a labor family, and it is, you know, it's just good stuff. It's, uh, you know, if, if you want to have a middle class, you have to have organized labor. Particularly, the larger the company, the more important it is to unionize it, I would say. Although, you know, would anybody disagree with that? Is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, how do you deal with a company, you know, if you're one of a thousand people, you know, if the, if you're the actual person who's making the decision lives in a different state even? I mean, you know, it's just, this is crazy, crazy stuff. So uh, with us now is uh, uh, Jim Allen, the president of, of the Bricklayers, who's kind of our host for this, um, and uh, John Spiros, the business manager with the Painters District Council 14, and Miles, remind ba me. Beatty. Miles Beatty. I'm uh, executive director of the Finishing Contractors Association. Great, great. So let's talk about the myth of labor versus management. Jim, you want to kick this off? Well, I think there is a big myth that uh, management hates unions. And uh, here in Chicago, and I've been president of the district council for 15 years, so I've been here a long time. That's not true. We have a great relationship. And uh, on the next, next segment, we have Richard Lobber, who's a mason contractor, who's going to sit down with us. But we have a great relationship throughout the whole district council 
uh, of the various trades with our contractors and our, our membership. So it is a myth, obviously, created by the right-wing anti-union so people. It, from an employer's point of view, why would an employer want to have a union? Well, uh, it's, it's a trained workforce, drug-free workforce, OSHA-trained. We have OSHA training uh, constantly. Being, so so being, you don't have to worry about accidents on the job yes. that are going to cost you money, that are going to raise your yeah. insurance rates, that are going to screw up the job that you're yeah. working on. Yeah, no doubt, and I'm sure John can talk a little bit more because he has his contractor here, and and uh, he can explain their relationship. And I and I know because I know John well that the painters have a good relationship with their contractors too. Okay, John, you want to pick that up? John well, Sparrow is the business manager with Painters District Council 14. Everybody thinks that it's always an adversarial position, but it's not with management. And I think for the most part, and I can speak for our contractors, uh, they want. For the most part, they want uh, their workers to thrive, have a, a good uh, life and provide for their kids and uh, so on and so forth. And that's why we cooperate with a lot of initiatives. We have what we call a STAR program, which is safety training and recognition, where our members as journeymen, they've gone through the apprenticeship, can continue their life skills to learn programs and are eligible to win a car. Every year we give away a car. Hmm. for people to take those classes. Now, that's paid for through a cooperation trust fund. Um, Miles could probably add more to that, but it's uh, not only that. It's our apprenticeship program, uh, labor management since on that as trustees, our welfare program for insurances, our labor management sits on that and provides the best benefits in the pension and some other stuff, but it provides the best for our members. To boil that down into a soundbite, would it be right to say that basically for an employer, what a union brings to them is it lifts off the shoulders of the employer and puts onto the shoulders of the union a whole set of burdens of education, of filtering the workforce to make sure you've got you know the workforce that you want, things well, like that? It's, it's funny you say that because it, it's somewhat it is. But uh, it's on both our shoulders, yeah. and we're both stepping up to that to plate on it. But a lot of your safety things are mandated by law that the employer has to give you a safe work site, mm -hmm. prepare you for those uh, unsafe things that may happen to you, um, proper respirators and such and that. Uh, so our STAR program does that. It's on both our shoulders then. Right. So we're not taking it completely off because they're not really wanting to give it up. They want to have some responsibility as well. Miles Beatty. Um, Jump in here. Well, I would say that um, as a signatory painting contractor for 35 years. Now, wait a minute. What does signatory mean? Means that we're a union painting contractor. Okay, signatory see. with District Council 14. Mm -hmm. That was my career for mm -hmm. 35 years before I became executive director of the Contractors Association. Mm -hmm. So as a contractor, it's more than that. It's, it's the morally the right thing to do is to be union. Now, the contractors are the employers. Correct. Okay. And I always went to bed at night knowing that my guys and my women had great health insurance. They had a pension that when they got done with their careers, they could live a comfortable life, that they could educate their children, that they could buy a home, that they could raise a family and send their kids to college or to apprentice school. My dad was a union painter as well, mm -hmm. so I followed in his footsteps. I still, to this day, hold my card. I've been in the union 41 years. 
in spite of being a business owner. And I just think being signatory, being union, is the only way to go if you're going to be a contractor, regardless of the trade. Yeah. Jim, how do you respond to the right-wingers who say that, well, you know, just this whole mythology that companies really shouldn't be unionized? I mean, it's, is, is there a, a straightforward, simple way to, to address that? Well, I, I think a lot of contractors' um, mindset is no one's going to tell me what to pay my employee. Right. So they don't like collective bargaining agreements where we sit down and negotiate an agreement for a three-year term usually. So they, they, they find that offensive, some of them. Uh, some of them thrive to be the, the, the gutter contractor that the union price is $100 and they get in at $50 and steal that work and then misclassify their workers, the whole thing, the... Uh, the illegal immigration that's here working under under the radar and then misclassifying. So there, it, it's you know what, like Miles just said, if you have a, a, a any decency as an employer, you'd like your members to be paid well. Mm. You want your you want them to retire. You want them to have health and welfare. I mean, he he said it so elegantly that. Uh, uh, I wish every contractor, and most of them are in our world, but uh, Miles really hit it out of the ballpark when he said that. Because you have an obligation. You know, you talked about it. You've been in businesses all your life, and you have employees that you feel an ob- obligation to. Yeah. And, uh, and As a small employer, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's more of a personal relationship as opposed it, it, to a large There's larger no doubt. Company. And then you get someone like a Donald Trump who has a reputation of screwing everybody that ever worked for him. Yeah. I mean, and it's He's not, proud of it. He's proud he's of it. He's been sued over 3,000 times. And he he's very about proud it. of it. Uh, we, ha- we had a, uh, a marble contractor one time that sat on our labor management. And this was before Donald Trump's name even came up. And he was from New York. He said, I never do any work for Trump. He screws every, every employee, never pays him. And that was 15 years ago that he told me that. Wow. And he says, I'm friends with him. Never work for him a day in my life because he won't pay you. Jim Allen, uh, John Spiros, Miles. Beatty. Beatty. Welcome back. We're live from the Bricklayers District Council in Elmhurst, the building here. Tom Hartman here with you. We're discussing, you know, broadly speaking, from an employer's point of view. And uh, Richard Lauber is with us. He is a mason contractor, as in that's masonry, right? Correct. Yep. And J&E Duff is the company. And uh, tell us, first of all, uh, just to kind of set the stage, Richard, what does a mason contractor do? Well, we do... Um, we build walls out of brick, block, concrete block, stone, any any masonry material, mm-hmm. and uh, we're a commercial mason contractor. So we do schools, municipal buildings, factories, apartment buildings, the whole the whole gamut of construction. Build a building out of brick or out of out of yeah. Correct. And 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 does that also include things like interior work, like doing bathrooms and things, or is that a whole separate? We, that's thing? a that's a separate. That would be a separate contract. Different, different kind of Correct. world. Yep. And, and so from a contractor's point of view, in other words, from an employer's point of view, um, uh, why is it a value to you to have unionized workers? Well, I, I, I can't imagine not being a union contractor. I'm a third-generation owner of Janie Duff. We started in 1936, and we've always been a, 
what I would consider a partner with the union. Mm -hmm. uh, my father particularly was a, is a great example to me as far as how to get along with, with the union leadership. I serve on, uh, as a management trustee, on a number of the, the pension funds, the health and welfare, the training center fund. It's, it's sort of, it's in my blood, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, again, I can't imagine not being a union contractor. It's, it's um, the only way to go as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and how does it work? I mean, you know, from your point of view as an employer, I guess how does it work? I don't know quite how, how well, else to well, ask that I mean, question. It, I mean, it, it works sort of. It works great. I mean, we as as was mentioned in the previous segment, we we get to the best of the best. We have highly trained uh, bricklayers. We also have lab, union laborers, union operating engineers. Um, as was stated earlier, I I'm able to employ people who can. Um, have good benefits, have health insurance for their families, get a good pension. Um, they can live in the communities where we work. The Chicago area is not the cheapest place in the world to, to live, but yeah. the people that work for me can live here, pay a lot of taxes, send their kids to college, be full participants in, in, in what society has to offer. Yeah. John, I see you taking some notes here. <laughs> John Daniel, the business manager at Smart Local 265. Your thoughts on this? Well, Tom, I think a lot of people don't really understand our infrastructure and, and how we're structured and, and the, the myth that contract or labor and management don't get along is, is, is really a terrible myth. All of our funds, our training fund, our health and welfare, our pension, everything is a trust fund, so duly administered between labor and management. So we sit at the table. Trust fund is a transparent fund. It's, it's, uh, it has a particular legal structure. That's correct. Yeah, Taft-Hartley is generally how it's referred to for at least the pension and health and welfare. Um, the decisions for training, for safety, for health and welfare, for benefit improvements, for pension structure is duly administered by labor and management. So we work in a cooperative fashion on a regular basis. Now, there is times where labor and management, we negotiate contracts. And in, in that particular moment, we put a hat on that my job is to represent my membership and their job is to represent their employer base. Outside of that negotiation, we walk in harmony to the benefit of our industry. That's really what it is. And I think something else people are missing is uh, the building and construction trades, by nature, is a transient workforce. So you may work for contractor X today, contractor Y tomorrow, and contractor C the next day. Throughout, you're constantly changing your employer depending on which employer gets the work. So. Maintaining a, a healthy family, a, a good employee for the contractor base, depends on continuity with health care, depends on continuity with pension plans, uh, continuity with uh, training. So one of the ways you can identify the union is the union is a human resource piece of a contractor or an employer. So we manage the experience of the employee. We work cooperatively with the contractor or the employer to develop what does that employee look like? What do they need for training? What kind of health care can we provide them? What kind of pension can we provide them? Collectively, how do we impact that employee, my member's life, so that he has a successful uh, career path, his family is taken care of, and he's productive in his community? That, that's really uh, how we like to frame it. Yeah. Jim? Well, yeah, uh, Jim think, Allen, president of the yeah. Bricklayers. Yeah, I think John hit a lot of things there. Um, like, like Richard said, he's on the pension board, the health and welfare, the annuity fund, the apprentice and training. 
And you know what he gets paid for that? And there's a lot of hours that he puts in, and not just him. There's about seven trustees, management. They get paid zero. So that's all volunteer for them because they care about the industry. So they care about their workers. They care about their pension, and they, they are responsible for making sure that those pensions are run correctly and the health and welfare is funded correctly. And that's all stuff that they volunteer to do and on their own. And that's eight contractors that sit on those boards. So it is a good working relationship. It has been since I've been here. That's great. That's great. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Complete with a live studio audience, our own peanut gallery. It's great having you all here. Some of you are old enough to remember peanut gallery. Remember Howdy Doody? (laughs) I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's one 888 one one gold Tom Harvin here with you. I'm in Elmhurst today at the Bricklayers District Council One building. Um, this uh, this whole gig event, uh, we've got a studio audience, we've got pizza, we've been, we're having a great time. It's all brought to you by the Bricklayers, as well as Spark 265, the Painters District Council 14, GWC Injury Law Firm, the Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers Local 11, and the Operating Engineers uh, Local 399. And uh, I don't know if anybody in the audience has any questions for anybody on our panel. Any questions about labor, there's a microphone right there. And if there's any, any specific questions that you have, uh, feel free to, to step up to the microphone and uh, Melissa here will help you out. Um, uh, continuing our conversation, oh, by the way, something I just need to mention to our, to our audience, now, kind of outside of labor, but the U.S. Supreme Court just ruled that uh, Donald Trump well, that his administration can't put a citizenship question on the census. This was designed, yeah, amen. This, this question was designed to basically scare away anybody who had anybody in their family or their extended family who might not be a legal citizen of the United States from answering the census, which would then defund those parts, you know, cut federal funding, and in some cases state funding, to those parts of the country where, uh, you know, where there's, there's a significant, largely Hispanic population. And it turns out we found, you know, we found out when this uh, guy who put this whole thing together died and his daughter got his, his uh, computer hard drives, we found out it was, this was an entirely race-based policy. Four of the five conservatives on the court um, wanted to keep the census question on there. John Roberts was the one who flipped, the Chief Justice. So 
you know, I think he's really starting to get concerned about the future and reputation of his own, of his own court. So, uh, uh, labor questions. We have a, a questioner, your name and where you're from, and, and what's your question? Hi, my name is Tanya, and I'm from LaGrange Park. Um, I have friends who are in unions, but continue to vote red. What are some talking points <laughs> that you recommend that I can use when talking with them? Because it just baffles me how, as said before, you know, during the Reagan years, that's when the unions and middle class started to you know, disappear, but they continue to be strong Republican voters hurting themselves. So what are some talking points that would be helpful that I use when speaking with them? That's a great or like question. when they post on Facebook, Yeah, <laughs> one uh, of my comments. Yeah, that's a great question, and I want each one of our panelists to take a shot at it. Jim Allen, the Bricklayers president. Yeah, you know what? I sit in, at this podium in Union Night, and I talk to my members and tell them, you know, the Republican Party is out to destroy unions. Take any other issues they have and, and whatever, but they're out to destroy unions. But it's hard to convince some of these people, and I know I can, I should say, I spotted Trump's supporter a mile away, but I can tell just by their body language when I'm talking at a union meeting who the Trump supporters are or who the Republicans are, and they think it's their friend, and I don't know, no matter how many times I'm not, how many letters I write, how many times I, I speak, I don't, I don't know how to, how to uh, really turn them. It's, it's very difficult. Billionaire Rupert Murdoch has yeah. built a very effective yeah. um, propaganda machine to promote the billionaire's worldview and the billionaire's point of view. And uh, it's, it's so sad that, that average working people watch Fox News and think that they're getting And actually, and I don't watch Fox News, but if you ever put it on, you can see how they're brainwashed. Yeah. And, and, and we have what? One radio program that's yeah, one, liberal. One, this, one this progressive one, station in Chicago. And, and about 500 right-wing ones that sit there and get in everyone's head. Yeah. And it's, it's, actually, it's actually almost 2,000 in the country. Right-wing yeah. right, right, right radio stations. That's crazy. got Sinclair with 212 yeah. TV stations. And, and there's maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 uh, progressive uh, radio stations around the country. John, your thoughts? Tanya, it's a great question. I think everyone in the room has dealt with the same thing, especially in social media. Um, some advice to you directly, and, and I may have heard this on Tom's show or Bill Press or someone's show at some point, and, and I had to deal with it with my own family. My father's a, a minister, so politically we don't see eye to eye very closely or really at all. Um, what doesn't work is start picking a fight with them. So as you phrase your question, how do I argue the point? Well, it's an intimate conversation. If, if it starts where you need to argue your point, you can't change their mind anyway. So you're going to take a defensive position, get all fired up and lose friends either through social media or in your community. That's not, my advice to you, that's not the correct approach. Um, we've developed a program called Smart Army. Um, Matt Gugala and, and, and a handful of our staff and members are engaged in the community. Talk, Matt talked about uh, food banks and volunteering at VFWs. It gives us the opportunity to humanize ourselves to maybe opposition or people that don't align themselves with our point of view, when we get past you're them and, and we're us and let's fight, and you actually show them that, hey, I got three boys and a wife and been married 26 years and my kids go to school just like your kids, um, you can actually have a conversation about how organized labor impacts you personally or how you see that impact affects people that aren't even part of the labor movement because um, it brings 
dollars into the community and it brings stable families. It, it's, there's nothing bad about it. It's just been villainized for years and years and years. So I, I caution you to don't take an argumentative approach because that person you can't change anyway and you're going to get frustrated. Um, find a way to humanize yourself and get them to listen to you. It's not easy. We all wrestle with it as labor leaders with our own members, with, with our own neighbors. But taking the time to humanize, they, what I heard on the radio was when you get in an argument with someone, you're not arguing a point of view. You're arguing with who, how they define themselves. Mm, so you're no, you're no longer talking about a topic. If I can uh, compartmentalize that it's a topic, but the person I'm debating with, that's how they define themselves. They're either pro-choice or uh, anti-whatever. They're, they're pro-gun. They're, they're anti-gun. Well, that's who they are. Talk about the effect of guns in the community. Talk about it, it's an intimate conversation. Otherwise, you're just going to get into a fight and get frustrated and throw your hands up and potentially lose friends. Yeah, start start with your commonalities. And speaking of guns, tomorrow night in Darien at Frugal Muse Bookstore, I will be signing my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. John Lauber, the uh, Mason contractor with uh, J&E Duff. Your thoughts on I don't think, on, I, don't on think I can add really to the answer to the question. I think part of the problem, though, is... Union members who are voting red, as you say, they're, they're living here and they, they kind of take everything for granted. They're, they, they, they're not, they don't have the experience of what it's like in another, say, less pro-union environment or market. And I think one thing you could do perhaps is just remind them of what they have through their union membership and remind them that, that's, that there's a particular political party that is fighting those kinds of things. Um, it reminds me of a time we we were ordering a material stone, some stone from another part of the country and um, it was being delivered and the person I was talking to was explaining, okay, when it's delivered, you're going to have to unload it yourself. It's like, okay, that's fine. And then the comment was, but I'm sure you could hire a couple of Mexicans to unload the truck for you. And I was just taken aback by this oh, this sort of different worldview, if you will, of, of this is this is how you treat employees or this is how you treat people that do the kind of work that it's I essentially do. Essentially dehumanize. Right. And and but in other parts of the country I know that the, the construction workers are sort of at the bottom of the barrel in terms of how they're treated. In the right to work for less states. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think people here that they they take that for granted. I know because I know i I have, you know, employees who who would you would think they'd be voting against their interests, but the, but part of it is they I think they just take for granted what they have here. Great, thank you very much for that question. We have another question. We have a question for Richard. Okay. Hi, I'm Jim from Chicago, and I've uh, been a lifelong union member and the son of a carpenter union member also. And all my life, I've talked to young guys about you know their perceptions of being in the union, and it's. So many guys have this negative attitude, and also the whole idea that the contractors and union members are at odds with each other and not partners. What are you, especially with uh, being a contractor and the other gentleman that was a contractor's association um, head, what are you doing to change that perception that there's neither, that they're partners, they are not adversaries, and that there's um, it's to everybody's benefit. 
you know, what, what are you doing or what can you do about for, that? For Richard Lauer, yeah, J.N.E. Dove. Yeah, I don't know that I'm doing a whole lot towards that end, but <laughs> one thing that comes to mind is I often have had people ask me, you know, of course, the conversation that don't know me well, well, what do you do? I'm a contractor. Oh, union or non-union, I'll say union. And the response is often, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that must be terrible. And then I can educate, I can educate them about the, the value of being a union contractor. Like, no, I'm, I'm glad to be a union contractor. But then there will be also be follow-up questions of, well, isn't it true that your bricklayers, there's a limit, they can only lay so many brick a day because they're in the union? It's like, no. Or, or oh, you must not be able to fire somebody because if, once you hire them, you got to keep them for life because of the union. It's like, no, this is, in fact, it's the easiest business probably to fire someone based on poor performance than any other industry. So that might go towards what you're talking about, just educating people who have these distorted, mythical views of what it means to be a, a union. We have questions. Hi, Tom. I'm Hi. Cindy Vogel. Watch your show. Big fan of yours. Um, I'd like to ask what the unions are doing to get into the high schools to maybe, as opposed to having that college day, have a union day of you know, so kids can learn more about, as opposed to going to college. I know when I was a kid in the 70s in high school, everybody wanted to be in a union. You wanted to be a carpenter or electrician or a post office or something. Yeah. And now they don't talk about that like they used to. And I think it's important that they do that. And I'd just like to add one talking point for uh, your Republican friends is that if they are Fox News watchers in the evening, that is not a fact-based show. It's all opinion. And so that would be something that you could say to someone is make sure that you look Google all that because it is not fact-based. It's opinion. Yeah, or even try watching a different network. <laughs> well, that, that would be the best. <laughs> oh, and, my. and my husband was a, a pipe fitter at Local 597. Just want to throw that That's out. great. So to recap your question in a sentence is? About going to the high schools and promoting the unions within the high schools. What can the unions be doing to, to spread the word, Jim? Uh, um, Jim Allen, president of the, of the Bricklayers. Yeah, we, um, we have a labor management uh, called Cisco Construction Industry. Uh, and they do multiple, probably 75 to 100 different uh, hands-on with all the trades. Uh, they will take their instructors, our instructors, bring them to the inner city and have a hands-on. So if you want to learn to touch a brick and feel what it feels like or nail a hammer, electric, uh, all the trades are there, sheet metal. Everyone's at these fairs to try to bring the inner city kids uh, and minorities into the, into the trades. And it's probably at least 75 different programs. And so same with all of our building trades, uh, apprenticeships. We go out and do outreach programs in the, in, the, in, the, in the different areas, high schools. Not like what it used to be. You know, it used to be taught. First of all, they don't teach labor in, in schools anymore. And uh, so a lot of the kids grow up. They don't know what a union is. But um, And I'm sure uh, we can talk about everybody's... Um, uh, training centers that go and do this and I, I know we do it a lot and I know the other trades are there as well so uh, the kids get to get a feel for the building trades just yeah. by seeing it hands-on yeah and the, so, and the outreach of John Daniel uh, with smart local 265 I think your, your question's a great question and I, I believe that there's been an institutional uh, problem with public education or education in general the expectation that all kids must go to college 
if not just college, an Ivy school, and if not just an Ivy school, a private elite school. There's been that institutional message that's been really beat down everybody's throat. They believe that that is the only path to success for children. Um, as Jim was saying, we do, we do a ton of outreach now. We go to a lot of career fairs. Um, but a lot of times the, the kids are just paraded in front of us and they check a box saying that they saw us. And so we're switching to where we're uh, through Cisco, through um, ourselves. We're, we're, we're inviting guidance counselors to our training center and host, hosting career fairs at our training center. So they bring the kids that want to come. I think there is a, a, a trend that's turning in the public school system. Um, I have a good friend that's a school board president, and I've heard it in a couple other districts where, uh, you know, they have college signing night for, for athletes, and they everybody claps and do the picture, and they, they, they acknowledge uh, if a child's going to go into the military at graduation. I'm starting to see a trend where they're actually doing apprenticeship signing days. So they're recognizing the children that are signing up for She Metal Workers Union through SMART or through the Pipe Fitters 597. They're, the school districts are starting to turn. It's a long game. It's been saturated to them that it's not a, a successful career path. You really can't sustain a living. Um, I think that message is starting to change, and I think it's from the effort of the people in this room and co uh, collectively uh, unions at whole. John Spiros with the Painters. Before you, just very quickly, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Pretty much everybody in my neighborhood worked at GM or Fisher Body or something like that. It was a total union. We studied in elementary school the history of labor. I, you know, sure. I knew the history. I knew what the Pullman Porter. I, I, right. no, I knew what Haymarket, Haymarket Square. I knew that by the time I was 12 years old. We have lost that. Why? Let me toss it to well, you, John Spears. Well, I think a lot of it, open in a big subject here, but a lot of, uh, uh, on the college level anyway, is corporate money being put into colleges and they direct the training yeah. where it goes. But also, what you, go back to the question, we do apprenticeship seminars at our facility as well. We have the building trades, which are all the building trades in the Chicagoland area, visit different schools, have different events. We also do some outreach to community groups like Chicago Women in the Trades. Um, uh, we have our own program called the Young Lions that reach out to schools and that, but it's seeing more and more of it now where the high schools are asking us to come back and see them so they get an understanding. Uh, they're starting to understand not everybody goes to college. So, and plus, you come to our program, you earn a good wage if you're union yeah. and benefits, and you have no debt when you get out of school. But we've, and right now we've got Republicans who are literally trying to have religion taught in our schools. Oh, yeah, right. Democrats need to start saying, we need to teach the history of labor in our schools. Damn it, I mean, this is real stuff. Thank you so much to all the groups, to the bricklayers here who have hosted us, to, to our studio audience. Thank you, thank you to WCPT. Um, thank you all for being on our panel. John, John, and, uh, and uh, Jim, thank you so much. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to participate. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.